0: Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: If we're a country where people can't agree on basic facts, then you know we have a bigger problem than the pandemic, right? Even after the pandemic clears, we're still gonna have this issue of, you know, who do you believe? Where do you go for information?
2: From offscript media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's show, returning champion, Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune, physician, entrepreneur, innovator, technologist, digital health guru, and founder at Suntra Modern Recovery, a telehealth platform offering personalized recovery solutions for people with substance use disorders. Needless to say, he's a man of many hats. And we both possess the fabled COVID-19 antibodies. So prepare yourself as I ask him a bunch of there are no stupid questions questions in an attempt to work our magic and turn the intellectual scientific scholarship around COVID-19 into perhaps more understandable and relatable words with less syllables for the average person, hopefully. We're gonna talk about everything from the horrors of the confirmation bias engine that is the shitstorm of social media, to the unknown unknowns that exist in the ether of this hot mess. So without further ado, I proudly submit myself as the armchair idiot for your listening pleasure. Enjoy the show. Jean-Luc, thank you for coming back a second time for uh, out of patience. I believe we both are a little out of patience in general. But I really wanted to just dig deeper into the inanity of the misinformation, disinformation. Where do we get information on how people are dealing with COVID and schools and mommy bloggers and PTA groups and science? What's science? I have no idea what science is anymore. (laughs) And my first question to you is, as a doctor, where do you get your credible information from to make sense of this
1: for you? Got it. So I would say um, I, I consider myself fortunate uh, because I am specially trained, if you will, to look at scientific research and to look at scientific journals and to be able to make sense of them. So, you know, my primary source of information, particularly in the last two months, has been the top tier medical journals. So that's the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association. Uh, there's another journal called the Annals of Internal Medicine. And I would say that in the last two months, there's been a dramatic uptick in the number of articles published looking specifically at the epidemiology of COVID-19 and specifically things around, you know, the, the role of masks, the role of uh, social distancing, the role of different environments and the transmission of the virus. And, um, although these articles are very technical, they are in many ways accessible if you've got an internet connection you can go to uh, the new england journal website i think it's nagm.org if i remember correctly and you can find these articles and you know this is the state of the art this is the cutting edge information and you know when you're seeing the various health officials, either at the federal level, state level, or city level, this is the data that they are consuming and analyzing and synthesizing to make their recommendations. So that's what I'm using right now. Um, I do, you know, listen to what some of the uh, various authorities are saying, but again, it's it's hard not to feel like a lot of that information is being politicized uh, for various aims. So I try to look at the primary source research myself and come to my own conclusion.
2: Yeah. I- I would say this is not a 24-news hour cable cycle legitimacy plan. You want to go straight to the science, straight to the experts. By the way, I, I had heard on NPR or on Andy Slavitt's show that there has been an exponential increase in peer-reviewed published studies going to these journals. And I can only imagine it's creating an intellectual cacophony of how do you decipher all of that, Correct.
1: It would be cacophonous if it was contradictory, right? But I think that, you know, the, the journals are increasingly focusing our conclusions around certain, you know, certain things that were maybe less clear before. So again, as I was saying, the importance of masks, the importance of social distancing, it's just becoming totally obvious that masks dramatically reduce the chance of transmission and the chance of acquiring the virus. Social distancing works, um, and again, becoming increasingly clear. Hydroxychloroquine was trending on Twitter. Really, does not work in any environment where it's been tested. So, yes, there's a lot of studies, but but again, I think um, the studies are focusing conclusions on certain things that we thought were true, uh, you know, uh, prior, but are becoming increasingly obvious are true.
2: I mean, many state governors are doing a great job, as I'd say, the, the Babelfish or the Google Translate of high intellectual academia and scholarship down to the layperson. But where do you see the opportunity to really schoolhouse rock this to the audiences that are eager to get more, I guess, truth? You know, Stephen Colbert said truthiness, but non-truthiness, actual truth. And make sense of that to their daily life.
1: I mean, look, I I think the problem that we have now is because so much of this knowledge has been politicized, I think that there are a lot of people who don't know who to trust or where to look. Um, And I think that a lot of people don't understand, you know, where are these conclusions coming from, you know? And I think one of the things that would be useful is as these articles get published, it would be great if CNN or Other trusted sources were doing a good job to say, hey, this study, which enrolled 5,000 patients. So let's say I'm referring to hydroxychloroquine now. Right. There is a study that enrolled 5,000 patients. This is how the study worked. Some people got hydroxychloroquine. Some people didn't. And when they studied those patients, what they found was that hydroxychloroquine did not improve the outcomes for any of those patients. And actually, some of those patients who got hydroxychloroquine did worse and were more likely to die. And it feels to me like we have to have a platform where we can get people closer and closer to the source of this data and help them understand. I mean, you know, I think when we first spoke, I I talked about this notion of uh, like a 101. You know, a lot of these concepts are are high level concepts even if you have a college degree even if you're an educated person some of these can be very difficult much less if you're you know uh, not college educated, don't have this kind of training. So I think we really have to do a better job of creating an educational platform. I think to some extent, the White House press conferences were supposed to be that way, you know, I guess in April or May, whenever they were happening. But obviously, you know, they got hijacked by the political process. So, you know, someone somewhere has to be able to say, listen, I am a neutral arbiter. I don't support either candidate. I, I'm, I'm not a political person. This is the information that we're seeing. This is what it means. And this is what you can conclude from it. And I think we got to figure out a way to help people understand that like, random Facebook posts are not a good source of information. The New England Journal is the top journal in the world. They don't have a dog in this fight. They're just trying to get the information out. This is what they're saying.
2: Yeah, I've, I've been defending science. I hate to say even that I have to defend science because it's the job of the observational process. The scientific method is to always err on the side of hoping to be proved wrong in the case you find the right conclusion or the right theorem. You are always on the side of skepticism until proven right. And it is your job to take the most risk averse models against unknown data. But that's kind of complicated to the average person. And when you start to hear X, Y, and Z, and I I, I want to give Twitter a tiny bit of temporary credit when they said that, uh, remember they put that, are you sure you want to retweet this? Would you like to read it first? And that lasted a week. (laughs) It lasted a week, right? No one did that, you know? (laughs) So being the echo chamber that Twitter is where 99% of the people make, uh, I'm sorry, 1% of the people make 99% of the noise, right? That's God bless Twitter. This notion of peer-to-peer, we talk about peer-to-peer and consumer influence, are more people coming to their conclusions based on the biases of other people because they don't want to know better? I hate to say it that way, but is this really just another version of confirmation bias? Only this time, it kills other people.
1: If there's any conclusion that we can draw from how people utilize social media is that you know, social media is a confirmation bias engine, right? You know, when you look at the way people behave on social media, people aggressively seek out sources that agree with them, right? And I think that that's why, you know, social media is such a hellscape of polarization, is that, you know, nobody is really. Out there, actively seeking information that may contradict what they what they believe, and that is particularly worrisome in situations where you know you're talking about life and death. You're talking about information that could you know protect people and uh, and and help them avoid getting sick and help them avoid dying. Um, so again, I think what we have to do, and you know, is we have to figure out how do we get people off of Facebook or. If Facebook is going to be where people go to get their information, how can you force Facebook to present to all people information that is non-biased to the extent that information can be non-biased and is clear in terms of its explanation of facts? And honestly, I, I think you know what we have here. What was highlighted in the pandemic is that we just have a a crisis of truth, right? Like, what is the truth? What are facts? And, you know, if we're a country where people can't agree on basic facts, you know, let's say that 50 drug studies show that X, Y, and Z drug doesn't work, then, you know, we have a bigger problem than the pandemic, right? Even after the pandemic clears, we're still going to have this issue of, you know, who do you believe? Where do you go for information?
2: So I want to coin a phrase, if I am in fact coining a phrase, little highbrow called reasonable objectivity. We can't expect the average person to abide by 100% of the high-risk perspectives that science imparts upon safety measures. It's unreasonable, which is why we did the the emergency workers and urgent care and drug stores stayed open, and I don't know what liquor stores stayed open, but maybe we needed liquor stores to stay open. (laughs) But to that extent, there was a reasonability to how we managed this, and we definitely showed that unfortunately we had to shut everything down. And in the states that did it right, like New York, who made mistakes at the beginning, but mistakes, I guess, had to be made when you're first, worked. But this, like you said, the politicization of having to get this back before it was ready, you're right. There's a leadership failure and we can get deep into the politics on some other show. But to the extent that, you know, we used to like hand wash our Amazon boxes when they showed up. And now we're kind of not doing that anymore. You know, where do we start drawing the reasonability line between living our lives as best we can and still being afraid or or dealing
1: with fear? Oh I look, I mean I, I think it comes down to each individual is dealing with this in their own way. And I think the the challenge is is that different people have different levels of reasonability, right? And I think, you know, different people have different levels of what they accept as proof. You know, you you um you referred to Andy Slavitt, who I who I really like and I think has done a great job in sharing information. He had a whole tweet storm maybe about a month ago where he said that a lot of people are experiential learners that you can tell them that there is this virus coming from china that it is very infectious it is much more deadly than the flu uh the chinese you know quarantined 700 million of their people that virus then came to new york and killed tens of thousands of people uh and uh, you know shut the city down and you can show them the evidence but they still have to learn it on their own and you know i think you know, we, we tend to think about people experiencing from information or being able to think in the ways that we do. And everybody's got a very different thought process. And I think that, uh, as I said, Andy, you know, Andy pointed out a lot of people have to learn this stuff on their own. And I think it's now, as you look at states like uh, Arizona, Texas, and Florida, a lot of people who were very skeptical about the virus and whether whether it was even real or not, now have their proof point and hopefully that will lead them in the right direction but you know you can you can try to educate people but i think sometimes people have to just learn things on their own
2: back with our guest after the break So I want to play the dumb guy in the room and have you Google translate down some of the science and the data to me. Okay. So just questions for shits and giggles. Is the virus, quote, less deadly now than it used to
1: be? Uh, I don't believe that there's any evidence of that. I, I think the things that you might be able to say are treatment has perhaps improved which has led to better outcomes you know, in a hospital setting. I think maybe providers know how to treat the disease now. Maybe patients who were suffering from coronavirus and didn't realize it and uh, in the early days and died at home or had some kind of bad outcome as a result, or maybe now more likely to, to encounter uh, providers and seek out care. But in terms of evidence that the virus itself in the typical person who gets it is less deadly, I, unless there's been you know, a dramatic change or mutation in the virus, which I don't think has been documented at any point, I don't believe that's true at all.
2: So basically, we learn how to better treat it when someone has to go into a hospital.
1: Correct. And and probably, you know, because there's so much information out there about, you know, the symptoms, I think people who may have ignored those constellation of symptoms, let's say cough, fever, shortness of breath, uh, are now maybe getting treated earlier and are having better outcomes as a result of that.
2: Okay, another question. So my mom just had an emergency procedure, and she's fine. And that's not the point of the question. But just because she had to go to the ER, by default, they gave her a COVID screening, which she hadn't had. So is it reasonable to assume that the spike in positive cases is more attributable or equally or maybe less attributable to random people just happening to go to the hospital and getting tested and happening to be positive?
1: Uh, Good question. So, So there's no question that as you start to test more people, you're going to find more cases, right? So for sure, um, I think part of the increase in the number of cases is just more people being tested. There's more testing capability. I read somewhere that I think we're able to do about a million tests a day now. So yes, that can definitely give you the, the sense that maybe all of this is just, we're doing more testing. The issue is, When you start looking at the positivity rates for these tests, what you're seeing is that, you know, positivity rates, like, you know, the the percentage of people that you're testing is either not going down or it's actually even going up. So, not only, you know, so again, in the states that I mentioned, you know, Texas, Florida, and Arizona. You know, not only are they getting more tests, but the percentage of people who are getting tested, the percentage of them who are positive is actually going up, which suggests that not only are you testing more people, but actually more people are getting infected and more people are walking around who are infected. So um, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's, you know, way more people are getting exposed because, you know, a lot of people are walking around without masks. A lot of people are not doing social distancing. And then now we have all this extra capacity that's allowing us to identify the people who are positive.
2: Okay. Next question. Do we know, writ large, or maybe piecemeal based on state reporting, what percentage of those who test positive, whether they happen to be in the hospital for a broken leg, or they have a fever at home and they decide to just go to like their local city
1: MD or whatever, what
2: percentage of those people actually have to go to the
1: hospital? What percentage of the people who test positive have to go to the hospital? Right. So I, I think you know the vast majority of people who are positive for coronavirus are asymptomatic. I was looking at some data recently, I haven't looked at it in the last couple of days, but it's like 80% plus, if I remember correctly, of people who are positive for coronavirus, whether they show up and ask for a test or they're tested surreptitiously, will be asymptomatic. So that means that 20% of people are symptomatic, And of the 20% of people who are symptomatic, you know, there's a sort of mild, moderate, severe spectrum, right? And it's generally the only the people who are sort of moderate to severe who are going to the hospital. So I don't know that number off the top of my head, but, you know, I would imagine that it's probably, you know, maybe 20% of those 20%. uh, So, you know, 20% of people who are symptomatic, 20% of people who are symptomatic actually have to go to the hospital and get treated. But again, I haven't seen the numbers lately.
2: Right, and within that twenty percent, there's like the remember the terror scales of colors in the two thousands. Like yeah. there's like the there's like Jesus. There's like holy shit, and like fuck, I'm gonna die. Like right. let's pick those three <laughs> levels. We have to make assumptions. So my next question is: We had assumed that this was a disease of the elderly, of the infirm, of those with pre-existing comorbidities and conditions. Is that holding true? as we're learning more about the demographics of those who are in that 20% of symptomatic and who go to the hospital at either like the, the middle, holy shit, or the you know, 911
1: red flag, you know, get me in the bed. Right. So I would say that it has never been true during this pandemic that the disease or that the virus only impacts people who are in high risk groups, right? And the high risk groups are advanced age, Obesity and sort of, you know, cardiovascular uh, chronic conditions. Those are the people who seem to be the highest at risk. But there have been many, many, many reports of young people who have died. Right, so uh, ch- children, infants who have died of the uh, of COVID. So it's an issue of risk, right? And sort of who is most likely at risk of suffering a severe outcome as a result. And again, it's you know people who are uh, older. Uh, advanced age, you know, is is very much a predictor. Um, you know, for people who are in their seventh and eighth, eighth decade, this is a hundred times more deadly than it is for people in in younger age groups. Again, obesity seems to be a, a big risk factor, as well as things like you know hypertension, diabetes, etc. But you know, a big thing that I've focused on and speaking with people is that there is this uh, weird focus on the binary of Does the virus kill you or does it not kill you? What a lot of people don't understand is that in between dying and not dying is a very broad area of sick for a long time and then suffering long-term consequences as a result of being sick. So for instance, you know, for me, I was sick for a month, right? And sort of debilitated for a month. It seems like I've been able to fully recover, but there are lots and lots of reports of people who are having Covid now for three months, right? Being sick for a hundred days, and uh, you know that's probably a significantly larger percentage uh, of people, a multiple of the people who actually die. So uh, again, this is not just a disease of people who are in sort of the high risk groups. It is a disease that affects everybody, and it just depends on you know wh- how your risk factors affect your clinical case, and more importantly. Even if you remain asymptomatic, you can still make a lot of other people sick. And I think that that's that's an issue that people still don't really understand is that even if you don't get sick with this thing, if you're infectious and you go out and you interact with a bunch of people, uh, you you could make a lot of people who are at risk sick and have them experience much worse consequences than you did.
2: Right. And that's the next question. (laughs) We keep going in order. The gift that keeps on giving, we always joke that, is cancer because you're never quite out of the woods unless you get very, very lucky. And here I am 25 years later with a whole host of wonderful things to have that are preferable to dying 25 years ago, perhaps. But we start to now understand that there can be long-term consequences of being in the hospital for a lengthy period of time because of this. Is that just because you're beaten down by the system trying to get better for so long? Or is it just like a you're already accidentally shit happens, good, bad luck, compromised, and this is just your life afterwards.
1: You know, it, it's it's a good question. I think you know, there's still a lot that we don't know about this virus, but what we do know about the virus is that it basically attacks every tissue, every organ in the body, a- everywhere where there is where there is uh, blood vessels. Um, So, you know, that means it can impact your heart, it can impact your lungs, it can impact your kidneys. And, um, you know, I think we're still trying to figure out what is it other than your demographics, right? Because yes, there are certain demographics that put you at risk, but those demographics are really just representations of things that are going on at a cellular level, at a molecular level, right? There's something about being 80 years old, that when you look at the cells, you either have an upregulation of certain receptors, a downregulation, whatever it is. But I think, you know, uh, as we learn more, we're just going to find that there's a lot of chronic things that are associated with this. and, And it really just comes down to, you know, the luck of the draw. What do your cellular receptors look like? What Whatever factor determines or drives response to this, uh, to this virus. Uh, and we're learning more about that and a more about that's getting, getting published.
2: So I saw something, you know, like I'm seeing things. I'm, I just, I read something that was like, people have identified certain patients that got diagnosed again with the virus. And then I'm reading counter arguments in the journals that suggest that maybe they didn't produce antibodies the first time. So they were susceptible to it a second time. Is that plausible?
1: I would say that this is like literally the big unknown has not been answered yet, but you know, there's, there's two cases, either the cases that somebody has gotten infected, you know, let's say they get infected at time zero, they recover, you know, in 15 to 30 days, they're doing fine. And then they get reinfected at you know ninety days or one hundred and twenty days. That could be one possible case. And you know there are certain viruses where people can be reinfected. Generally, with viruses, you get uh, infected and then you develop some kind of immunity. But maybe this is a virus where people, even after they recover, can uh, be reinfected. The other option is that. People are getting infected, or the other possibility is that people are getting infected and they are just not resolving their infection. Their immune system is not clearing their bodies of the virus. So, you know, again, I I mentioned that there are some people out there who've been sick continuously for a hundred days. Maybe the people who are being, you know, who are quote unquote being reinfected are just people who never cleared their virus. So, you know, they got infected again at time zero. They got A little bit better at 15 to 30 days and they felt better but they were still very much infected and then something down the road just caused that virus that was impacting them that was still in their body to not reactivate but to To sort of, you know, beat the immune system again and create the same symptoms that they had before. Um, And, you know, there's this very interesting pattern that they're seeing of people who who are test positive, then test negative, then test negative, and then test positive again. Maybe the pattern is actually that those negatives are false negatives, and people are actually positive throughout. We just don't have the technology to actually tell whether they're positive throughout. But I would argue that that whole question of You know, the natural history of this virus, the potential of people to be reinfected is an intense study, uh, intense area of uh, research right now. And I think we'll have more research on that soon.
2: Yeah, it's terrifying just to not know. But at the same time, what are the, let's go back to reasonable objectivity in what you can do. And clearly wearing a mask, whether you've had it or not, is still a good idea. Let me go back to one other question, which is like we've seen, and i I been All of the news, but I, I don't know how to make sense of this. There's been consistent, you know, right to assemble public protests and assembly in every state for months and months now. And in many of the states, the incidence has barely risen. And in other states, it's skyrocketing. Is there any way to explain that?
1: Well, you know, I think, you know, you live in New York, so you are familiar with all the Black Lives uh, Matter protests here. And one of the interesting things about those Black Lives Matter protests, they, they happened more than a month ago. And if we were going to see a big spike from those kinds of protests, you'd, you'd be seeing a huge increase in cases, hospitalizations right now. And we haven't seen that. So I think that in blue states where people were protesting, in many cases, there was universal mask wearing. And I remember, I mean, this is sort of anecdotal evidence. I don't, I, you know, I don't have statistical proof of this, but in all of the protests that I saw and all the people outside, I saw people wearing masks. And um, I think that in some of these red states where people were protesting, you know, in, in many of those cases, they were protesting reopening, those people weren't wearing masks. And I think the lesson that's gonna come out of this is that you can have people Outside, in relative proximity uh, to each other, you can have people, you know, uh, demonstrating in crowds and that kind of stuff. But as long as you're doing it outside and you're wearing masks, that actually might be a pretty safe environment. And I think somebody hopefully will publish on, you know, outdoor protests in New York at some point soon. But I think the big thing is what the masks do is the masks prevent microdroplets and other kind of infectious substances from being easily transmitted between people. So if, if they're coming out of your mouth, the mask is sort of knocking them down. And if you're on the other end of it, the mask is sort of preventing those substances from getting to you. And then when you're outside, you have... Airflow, right? So, you know, just imagine as 10,000 people are marching, there's a lot of airflow around them, you know, they're moving the air, the air is uh, the wind is blowing, and it's blowing the micro droplets and aerosols and other things and making it less likely for people to get infected. So again, another area of research to be published, but I continue to believe that being outside wearing a mask and social distancing is probably safe. And maybe even not social distancing might be safe, but again, to be to be determined.
2: And then, of course, the final frontier is wearing masks on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> endless, endless fodder to figure this crap out. I have one more, I mean, not a thousand more questions, but I think for the purposes of the Matt has no idea what the hell's going on, ask an expert episode of Out of Patience. Has there been any conclusive way on how to get through to people reasonably that choose not to wear a mask for? Sense of maybe being uneducated or driven by confirmation bias.
1: I think there are a couple ways to get to people. I think there is the you know the the easy way and then the hard way. I think that peer pressure really works, and I think that you know people want to, as human beings, you know, we're herd animals, and we don't want to be perceived as being you know outside the norm. That's just human nature. So I think that consistent wearing of masks by Regular citizens, I think really helps. I think that modeling of good behaviors by, by our leaders at all levels, city, state, federal, I think makes a big difference. I think, you know, celebrities wearing masks, you know, a lot of people look to celebrities for guidance. I think, you know, people just have to have the right kind of behavior model for them at a couple of different levels. That's the easy way. The hard way is that for people who don't want to wear masks, they should just have, you know, face consequences. And those consequences are like, you can't go into Walmart if you're not wearing a mask. You know, you can't go into Mickey D's if you're not wearing a mask. Um, and I think, you know, there's going to be that one or 2% of the population who says, hey, you know, screw you, you can't tell me what to do. And for those people, we got to deal with them in the hard way. I, you know, I, my hope is always that people come to the right realization on their own. But if somebody decides that they're not going to wear a mask and they're going to put people other people at risk, I think we say, hey, listen, you just can't participate in, you know, the social world. And I think that we're seeing great leadership by corporations now who realize that, you know, probably the federal government is not going to be making these mandates. So the corporations realize that we have a platform that we can use and we can use that platform to get people to do the right thing based on what the evidence shows. We're not just making people wear masks because we're trying to control them or destroy their individuality. We're just show, we, we've just seen that the data clearly shows that masks save lives and uh, reduce the transmission of virus. And that's the right thing to do.
2: And then we have to hope that the local store managers enforce that,
1: Yeah, we do. Look, and and there's always going to be that guy, right? That guy who says, you know, screw you, I'm walking in, and I'm going to do whatever I want, and you can't stop me. And like, do I think that the police should be stopping those guys? I don't think so. But I think that the, the, the number of people who are willing to deal with that kind of scorn, the number of people who are willing to become, you know, viral memes is small, right? Like point, less than 1% small. And I think that as long as, you know, less than 1% of people are not wearing masks, I think we'll be okay. You know, what we do have to do is we have to get the mask wearing number to 80%, 90%. I'm sure there's a a scientific study that'll show us what number works. Um, If it's just one random Joe who's walking around and who's walking around conceivably because he's not actively sick because of COVID, then I think we'll, we'll be okay.
2: Yeah, that's the uh, compliance percentage of risk portfolios, right? Like, it's, I would say it's the number of stupid people, but a lot of them I wouldn't say are just stupid. I think it, there is a rational conversation with it's a bell curve with, with some of them. But to the extent, like, if you're in Target and there are four people without wearing masks, but there's 200 people wearing masks, to what degree of damage could they possibly do, you know, with an asterisk after that question?
1: Right, exactly. So, you know, again, we're not trying to drive the number of people not wearing masks to zero because, you know, there's an asymptote. There's uh, there's a limit to, you know, there's just a certain number of, as you said, stupid people. I sometimes think about them as more crazy people, but there's just a a certain percentage of of them in the world that we can't control, right? And I don't think it's the place. I don't think cops should be in a position of of arresting these people and throwing them in jail. But again, I think if we have the right amount of modeling, the right amount of negative consequences for people who don't do the right thing, um, we'll get to a number that works. And again, you you know, like you live in New York, like when I go out, man, you know, most people are wearing masks. The vast majority of people are wearing masks. When I go into a store, everybody's wearing a mask and everybody is doing their part. Yep. Yep. Yep.
2: So let's give a quick plug for a Modern recovery.
1: Sure. So you know, uh, the business uh, I founded is called Central Modern Recovery. We are a virtual drug and alcohol treatment program. Um, it's been very, very difficult for people to get to uh, in-person AA meetings. It's been very difficult to, for people who have drug and alcohol issues to access the normal resources that they might use. So uh, Central Modern Recovery offers a platform that uh, connects people to coaches, educational tools, etc., uh, and support uh, to help. Get them through what is a very difficult time. The pandemic has made it really, really hard for people dealing with addiction. So, um, if you have a problem or if you have somebody you know and you love who has a problem, you can reach us at suntra H E L L O S U N T R A dot com, or give us a call at 646 350 0064. 646 350 0064.
2: A perfectly read script, my friend. Well done. <laughs> Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune, uh, physician, entrepreneur, innovator, technologist, digital health specialist, dear friend of mine, legacy advocate in all the things on the right side of history. Thank you, my friend, for coming back on Out of patience.
1: All right, man. Thanks very much for the invite and be well. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tunn is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.